This is The Engine Room of Democracy, a podcast series that explores how the rules and values of constitutional democracy work every day in our government and in our lives. Here we will explore major questions facing America. How do we keep government institutions accountable to citizens? How do democracies control military force? What is lawful warfare? How do we enforce it? How do the courts enforce their judgments? How do we honor the right of privacy while our security forces use electronic tools to track down bad guys? I'm your host, John Hamry, here at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. Each week, I sit down with remarkable individuals who had senior government positions to discuss these questions. We explore together what it means to be a government of laws. Welcome, everybody. This is the Engine Room of Democracy. Today, I'm just very pleased to welcome Dr. Richard Meserve. Dr. Meserve is a unique person. He's currently a lawyer with the towering law firm of Covington and Burling here in, in Washington, but he also is a PhD in applied physics. So he's a chronic underachiever. <laughs> Most important for this conversation today is that Dick was the chairman of the U.S. Nuclear Regulatory Commission. The purpose of our session today is to explore how independent agencies work in the federal government. We're going to use the Nuclear Regulatory Commission, the NRC, as, as simply the, the focal point for it, but we're really asking more fundamental questions. How independent agencies operate and how they operate within the rule of law. And so, Dick, I, I'm just delighted that you are here. Uh, as I mentioned, you were the chairman of the Nuclear Regulatory Commission. It's a vital organization that oversees the nuclear energy industry. Dick, please just start by giving us a snapshot of the NRC. You know, what does the NRC do? How does it work? Well, first of all, thank you, John. I'm really pleased to um, be able to join you this morning. And that was a very generous introduction. <laughs> Let me just say a little bit about the NRC. The NRC is basically responsible for regulating nuclear power plants, nuclear fuel cycle facilities that basically make the fuel for power plants, the production of radio pharmaceuticals, and the use of basically nuclear materials throughout the economy. It is charged by Congress to protect the public health and safety and the environment and to provide for the common defense and security. And so that's the sort of license that's given to the NRC by the Congress. And it does this through uh, issuance of licenses to, after assuring that people have the capability to fulfill their responsibilities, uh, inspections to make sure that they are doing so. And then uh, it has enforcement powers in the event that uh, somebody is falling short. The agency has a uh, budget of about $900 million and uh, has about 3,000 or so uh, full-time equivalent staff. So it's a big agency. It's headquartered in, D I say, uh, the District of Columbia. Actually, it's in Rockville. And there are four regional offices that are dispersed around the country that have some ancillary powers to be close to the regulated community. 
As I mentioned, it has a very large staff, but it is headed by a five-person commission. And as you noted, I'm a former chairman of the NRC. You are, you're a lawyer, not only a physicist, but as a lawyer. Tell us, what are independent agencies? The Constitution doesn't refer to them. What are independent agencies? How do they work? Independent of what? Well, independent agencies are created by Congress, by statute. And they're created in recognition that some subject areas require expertise, maybe sort of beyond the normal care. And so they create these independent agencies so you have basically a capacity to be able to understand all the details of affects that community. And quite frankly, part of the purpose is to make them independent of politics. So they are basically insulated from political pressures to some extent uh, on being able to fulfill their functions, which basically should be non-political. They are part of the executive branch. And as I indicated, there's intended, however, to be, for the most part, outside uh, direct presidential control. That uh, is achieved by typically the leadership uh, is appointed by the president with the advice and consent of the Senate. So the president will nominate five commissioners, and they have rotating terms. They each have a term of five years. So one goes off each year. And if they are appointed after the advice and consent of the Senate, the same process occurs for, for example, ambassadors. In the case of the NRC, the commissioners can only be removed basically for cause. There has to be a reason. Unlike a cabinet secretary who serves at the pleasure of the president and can be dismissed whenever the president wants to do so. Well, the president does have the authority to pick a chairperson from among the confirmed members. He doesn't have to go back to the Senate. And the president can remove the chairperson. And that sometimes happens at the change of the administration, that uh, someone who is the chairperson might be removed and then replaced by another person who's already been confirmed and approved by the Senate. It turns out there was a decision that actually affected how independent agencies work. An independent agency that was created by the Dodd-Frank law that came out of the Great Recession, 2008, the agency was the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. And the statute that created it provided that there should be a single administrator who could be removed only for cause. And the Supreme Court in a 5-4 decision last week said that, no, because this person was in the part of the executive branch and it was a single administrator, that person should not be uh, insulated from being moved at the pleasure of the president. That was a rather radical change in what had been understood to be the law by the Supreme Court last week in a 5-4 decision. If one reads the decision, it doesn't affect any of the independent agencies that are headed by a commission and have sort of judicial authorities. There's a very old Supreme Court precedent that says that's fine, and the court basically affirmed that. So it does affect independent agencies that have a single head by the result of this decision can be removed by the president uh, at the president's decision. And that does have some practical effects that people have been talking about, the implications, for example, for the Federal Reserve Board, where the chairman has special powers and it serves a 10-year term. 
and customarily has been completely independent of the president. So there is now a question with agencies like the Federal Reserve Board as to what's going to happen to them. Mm. That's very interesting. In a sense, the court was ruling on the question of legal accountability where the president is the executive authority for the government. Wasn't that the essence of the ruling that if there's only one chairman, the president has to have the capacity to remove them? That's what five members of the court thought. (laughs) The other four recognized that the creation of this was by the Congress with the approval of the president of the time, so that this was sort of reflected something that happens very commonly in the government where there is an independent agency headed by a single administrator. So the court sort of radically changed what it had understood to be the practice of what was acceptable. And it was on the basis, as you said, that the president is part of the executive branch and we've got to give the president the authority. But I should say that part of the purpose of creating these independent agencies is because the Congress, on a statute that's been assigned by the president, has wanted to have these agencies have some independence from the president. So there were actually very strong arguments on the other side in this case. Yeah, that's why it was so evenly divided. Dick, let me ask about NRC specifically as an example, but it's an independent agency. It's a regulatory agency. So that means you have to interact all the time with the target industry that you're regulating. How does the NRC maintain its independence and its legitimacy when it's interacting all the time with an affected industry? Well, that, of course, is a challenge that uh, people worry about an agency becoming a captive of the industry that it regulates. So it is a serious concern for the regard to every independent agency. Are they really independent in the sense that they're making decisions that are not slanted in the favor of the regulated community with whom they obviously do deal extensively? The way the NRC handles this issue is that First of all, there's complete transparency in the decision-making. The notion is that things that happen in the dark are easy to misunderstand. And so the whole decision process is very open. If one goes to the NRC website, for example, you will find that when there is a decision that's to be made by the NRC, it's presented to the five commissioners by way of a paper that's prepared by the staff that typically arrays a series of options. That paper, which explains what the pluses and minuses of all the options is a publicly available document, typically. I say typically because if it deals with security or some issue that can't be public, it won't be, but basically everything is open. And then the commissioners all vote on their options on that paper. And the commission's decisions are open to the public. So you can see for every commissioner how that person voted and why, how they justified their vote. So you have a transparency in the whole process, which I think is intended to be and is, should be reassuring to the whole public. that They're saying, okay, here's why they've decided that. And it's all laid out. There are also internal processes to protect the integrity. You know, there are layers of decision-making, for example, that there'll be initially some decision that might get made by the staff and it could get bumped up and reviewed by the commission. 
There's an inspector general who has oversight and authority over all the activities of the commission and making sure that the commission's acting appropriately. There also is a special process at the NRC where if there's a staff member who thinks that the decision is wrongheaded, a decision maybe his superior among the staff, the management of staff is uh, making a decision that is not justified or is inappropriate, they can file what's called a differing professional opinion. And that goes to a special review board that rules on it as to whether the dissent basically is correct and can basically, and all that is open to the public. And if they find it's justified, then the decision gets revisited. So there's a whole set of processes within the NRC to try to assure that the decisions are made on a proper basis. And of course, there's then a possibility of judicial review of the decisions, that uh, someone who's affected by the decision can go to a court, and they do. And there'll be a review of the decisions by the court as to whether the NRC has acted appropriately and consistent with its obligations. And of course, finally, there's congressional oversight. If Congress has concern about something NRC has done, then they routinely can call the commissioners up to explain. And of course, they could, by statute, bring about a change in a a NRC decision. So there are basically um, multiple means by which the uh, community can get comfortable with, the entire community, the public, can get comfortable with the independence of the agency is not captured by the regulated community. Dick, this is a little bit slight detour in this conversation, but I want to ask you about kind of the trend in recent years about government ethics, where we are deeply skeptical about putting somebody in a government position if they have come from the industry. And yet that's the expertise that you seem to want when you have regulators. What are your thoughts about that balance? You do want expertise. There are some commissioners who actually get drawn from academia, uh, who are nuclear engineers. That I was on the phone yesterday with George Apostolakis, for example, who was a commissioner. He was a tenured faculty member in MIT nuclear engineering department. There are obviously some commissioners who come from industry, but there is a sort of an anomalous thing that uh, happens with regard to the NRC. And that is to reinforce political independence, I've mentioned. By statute, no more than three commissioners can come from a single political party. Uh, And so you always have a balance of Republicans and Democrats on a commission. And there's a funny thing that happens is that when the president is of one party and there's a need to fill a vacancy from the other party, the president typically turns to the leader of the other party in the Senate and gets a recommendation as to who might be appropriate to come in. And one thing that I observed happens is that senators actually often don't see far beyond their staff of the (laughs) various committees in the Senate. So you have a whole series of commission over the years that come from being on committee staff over the years. And actually, to my mind, there's some very capable people who've come through that route but it sometimes does create a, a problem in that they bring their political stripes with them and may be more conscious of the political dimensions of the decision-making than is healthy for the NRC. But I've always urged in this circumstance that the Senate 
think beyond their own staff, but there are lots of other people that might have capability. <laughs> that is an issue. Yeah. Dick, let me again return to kind of the internal dynamics of an independent agency. And there's a term of art called rulemaking. And it is the process under which, I mean, the legislation tends to be pretty broad because it happens at one time, it can't anticipate future technologies, et cetera. So there's a procedure that we have where the agency goes through a rulemaking process. Would you describe that to us? So basically what happens is that with independent agencies like the NRC, it's given a congressional charter created by statute and Congress says, that your role is to protect public health and safety in the environment and to you know, provide for the common defense and security. So it basically gives a license to the agency to sort out how to achieve that purpose. And obviously that's very general. And the regulated community needs a lot more detail. Well, what exactly should we do to fulfill this? And so the means for achieving that purpose are typically by way of rules. And they have to be promulgated by a process from the 1930s. It's called the Administrative Procedures Act. And that is a very systematic process by which a rule gets established. And the way it works is that often, not always, an agency will publish an advanced notice of proposed rulemaking. It publishes it in the Federal Register. And it's where all the rules of the government are published, available in probably every library. And and the agent will say, we're thinking about issuing a rule in this area. This is sort of the general kinds of things we're thinking about. We'd like some comment as to whether we should do this. There may be a series of specific issues we'd like to get your insights on about how we should proceed, if we should proceed. And the agency will get comments that come in from that process. Then the the, uh, agency will, and it's published in draft form in the Federal Register for formal comment. And it lays out all of the rules, and it's actually intended to be promulgated, all the words. And there's an explanation about, here's what we're trying to do, here's what each section's intended to serve. And it's published for comment, usually a defined comment period, typically 60 days or so, and it can be extended, but basically, published in the Federal Register to collect comments. The agency will get all those comments and it will then consider them and ultimately issue a final rule. And the final rule is accompanied by a Federal Register notice, of course, with a discussion in the Federal Register notice before you actually get to the text of the rule to explain, here's the comments we got, here's what people said, here's how we decided the issue. There is a whole public record that is available as to how the agency ended up with this rule, which then would have the force of law. And now, of course, if someone seriously disagrees with the rule, they then can go to the courts. Uh, In the case of the NRC, they go to the DC Circuit, which is the court right below the Supreme Court, and there'll be a three-judge panel that will hear a challenge to the rule on the basis that the agency didn't follow appropriate procedures, or that the agency was arbitrary or capricious in some sense. I mean, the judicial review would tend to be deferential in recognition that the agency has special expertise, but that doesn't mean it necessarily has a light hand, and uh, the agency and the, and the courts are comfortable at times in overturning rules. 
this actually has happened a whole bunch of times with the Trump administration in that they came in and promulgated a whole series of environmental rules without having gone through the process of explaining why they were changing them and what they were doing. And the courts have been very comfortable in uh, basically refusing to let those final rules go into effect. So this process of the courts has had a very uh, significant impact on how, at least in the environmental area, things that proceeded with the Trump administration. Let me t- dig a little deeper on this specific question. You know, government ethics has this concept of particular matter versus general interest. And a particular matter is something that affects your company's directly. So when you are in the rulemaking process, obviously you are asking people, how is this going to affect your company? You also, I know, get comments from the private sector that say they're more in the general interest, public interest. What's the standing in rulemaking between people that advocate on a particular matter, their own particular interest, versus people that advocate on a general public interest? Well, the NRC will take comments from everyone and considers all the comments and will discuss them as part of the process of the rulemaking. There can be issues when you get into the courts of establishing you have what's called standing to challenge a rule. And that's typically, obviously, a company is directly affected, it can easily establish standing. Uh, And typically, sort of the public interest groups can point to members who are in, for example, to establish standing, could point to members who are in the vicinity of a plant and have concerns about it that are parallel to the public interest group. So it tends not to be an obstacle for everyone to get before the courts if they choose to do so. And it's all commerce as far as the NRC is concerned in its evaluation of a rule. Okay. Let me ask, because you headed up an agency that really was responsible for very sophisticated science and engineering. You know, when Congress passed the legislation to create the NRC, it would not have known, for example, about small modular reactors. It would not have known about laser isotope separation as opposed to, you know, gaseous diffusion. So technology is changing all the time. How do independent agencies stay current with changes in the world? Because the law can't change. Agencies have to do that. How does that work? Well, uh, you're quite correct, particularly for an agency like the NRC that's dealing with a technology that's evolving, that you really need to have a capacity to stay even with uh, technical change. And this is really is a very much of a current challenge for the NRC and the regulated community because all of our existing reactors in the United States are light water reactors. That is, ordinary water is the moderator and coolant in the reactor. And there are lots of thoughts about advanced reactors that have different kinds of coolants, you know, gas or sodium, liquid metals, and having very different characteristics and different issues associated with them than light water reactors. So the NRC is confronted right now with the challenge of evolving technology that they need to be prepared to deal with because there are a lot of companies out there who are proposing these kinds of changes. And then, as you noted, there's small modular reactors that people are talking about, maybe light water reactors. They don't have to be. But they're enough different from the kind of giant reactors that we now use that they present different regulatory issues. 
so the NRC really has a challenge on staying even with the technology. And they try to do it in a variety of ways. There is an office of research at the NRC, which is specifically tasked with sort of looking down the road, preparing the NRC for what's coming. The Department of Energy does all sorts of R&D on nuclear matters. They have basically an assistant secretary for nuclear energy with a budget of about a billion dollars that is focused on nuclear-related issues, civilian nuclear-related issues. There's a whole different part of deals with nuclear weapons. And so you have the benefit of R&D, and there is a linkage with that R&D with the NRC, and that there'll be workshops that NRC people will go to, and they're not isolated from each other. The NRC also hires technically sophisticated staff in that there's a real effort to recruit from community. And in fact, this was true when I was there. There are more PhDs per full-time equivalent at the NRC than in any other agency other than perhaps the NSF. Of course, many of those people have nuclear engineering degrees. Uh, some of them may be chemical engineering, or electrical engineering, but you know they, they have skills, advanced educational skills. The NRC also hires consultants, technical consultants, to help them review of applications. Engages actually contracts with the national laboratories, the DOE national laboratories, for that same purpose. It has advisory committees in various technical areas, which are you know, drawn from people outside the agency who stay abreast. Some of them may be in the company, some of them would be in academia, a range of different people. And every commissioner has a personal staff. And they may have one or two personal staff who deal specifically, for example, with reactors. And those people typically come with technical expertise. When I was uh, chairman, I had a guy who I still have close contact with who had a PhD from MIT uh, in nuclear engineering and actually taught in a nuclear engineering department at Georgia Tech when it had a nuclear engineering department. So, I mean, there's a range of different ways in which you get input. But it, it's still a challenge. And one of the challenges is that I, there's a whole bunch of different ideas that are out there for advanced reactors. And you have, and there's a budgetary cost of developing expertise on every one of them. So there is a sort of budgetary challenge in trying to stay at top of technical developments and have some sophistication of where you need to devote your resources to have the capacity to be able to deal with what's coming. I had that challenge when I was the commission. At that point, there was great interest in a pebble bed gas reactor, a very advanced reactor with a gas coolant. And it looked like we were going to get an application. So I built up our capacity to be able to deal with the application that we anticipated coming. And then it turned out that the whole thing blew up and we never got an application. So <laughs> there may be some in the future. I mean, this is still a good idea to explore. It blew up as an economic enterprise, not as yeah, a... Yeah. Yes, <laughs> very much. <laughs> okay. There is a challenge about how do you how you pick and choose. Yeah. Dick, let me ask, you know, the first amendment, you know, to the Bill of Rights, it gives the legal right of and the constitutional right of citizens to petition the government for redress of grievances. Now, we've interpreted that to mean, you know, the right to lobby the government for your particular interests. How does that work with the NRC? Do individual companies come to you? Do they do it through associations? How does that right of redress for grievances work with the NRC? Let me say that there's a whole bunch of ways that the NRC gets input, first of all. 
I mentioned these papers that the staff prepares on issues that are before the commission. Quite often, if it's a contentious issue, the commissioners will make that paper publicly available before they vote on the paper. I described that process earlier. And the reason they make it public is so that anyone's got problems that uh, they want to have the commission consider, they can let their views be known. In the case of the nuclear industry, that frequently happens by way of uh, an organization in Washington called the Nuclear Energy Institute. There are others on the more the public interest side who may come in and present their views. And Union of Concerned Scientists is an example of one that really understood and understands the NRC process and can be quite effective and very valuable input decision. And then typically before the commission votes, if it's particularly if it's a contentious issue, the commissioners will have a public hearing that will be in their building, the five commissioners assemble, and there'll be panels. The staff may be on one panel that present their views. There may be an industry panel. There may be a panel of others that disagree with the industry that present. And typically, we try to make it a balance that be uh, you don't have just one side. So all of that is part of the input. You know, if NRC makes a decision, for example, in a particular case, we've got to, a, say, a reactor decision to allow a license extension, for example. Individuals who are affected can challenge that, and it will go to a hearing uh, before a tribunal of administrative judges who are employed by the NRC, but are independent, basically, of the commission. And they will make rulings as to whether, first of all, the people who challenge the decision have standing. It could be that the applicant disagrees with the decision. They can challenge it as well. Uh, And they do it by way of something that are called contentions. And they're evaluated by as to whether they actually should have a hearing, uh, which can result in witnesses appearing before the judges. It doesn't necessarily have to, but can. Then the judges will make a ruling. And the interveners in the decision can then appeal to the commission itself, who will then rule on the challenge to the administrative judges and can overturn the decision or change it in various ways. In every stage is a formal written decision. Everyone sees the process, what's been presented, how the judges ruled, how the commission ruled, with a decision written at each level as to how the commission or the judges reached the decision they did. And then, of course, the interveners can go for judicial review. They can go to the courts and get review of the decision. And it would typically be to the D.C. Circuit. doesn't have to be in this case. So there's a whole way in which the public has got all kinds of rights to participate in the process. Dick, thank you. Uh, We're coming to the end of the hour. Let me just ask one last question. How do independent agencies relate to other departments of the government? I mean, there's a we have a Department of Energy. We've got Treasury. We've got, you know, et cetera. How do independent agencies relate to these other parts of the executive branch? Well, um, they're independent, but they're not intended to be isolated. So the answer is, is there can be and should be a cooperative relationship. I mentioned already that uh, DOE is involved with the NRC in various supportive ways or even could be an applicant for a license. With regard to other agencies, there's similarly our interactions. The Department of State, the NRC is 
sort of viewed around the world as the gold standard for regulatory expertise. And so uh, we would frequently be engaged in the pursuit of the foreign policy objectives of the U.S. When I was the chairman, for example, the president, this was George W. Bush, had a meeting with the prime minister of India. And out of that came the primary things the Indians wanted was to resume cooperation on civilian nuclear matters with the U.S. And so out of that process came a uh, agreement by the president with consent by us that, of course, we would renew our engagement with India on cooperation with them on nuclear safety issues. So I went to India and we had a very productive meeting with the Indians that sort of kicked off a relationship. That was all done at the request of the president in this instance, and there are other instances where the Department of State wanted us involved. So uh, that's just an example. Um, Department of Homeland Security, of course, is very interested in the security of uh, nuclear plants and is close coordination with them as well on ensuring that basically that the nuclear plants are secure. And that is a matter in which the NRC has regulatory authority. Uh, and so there's very extensive security requirements at nuclear facilities that have quite frankly existed before 9-11. I was the chairman over the 9-11 period, and we significantly upgraded them as a result of that experience. Dick, we have come to the end of the hour, but I, I do want to just say this has been a spectacular introduction to a topic that Americans don't understand, but it affects their lives every day in the most important ways. So it's been a fabulous introduction to this. I'm afraid we probably just scratched naively the surface of it, but I learned a lot listening to you. So let me just say, any final words that you would offer that you want to share with our audience? Thank you, John. First of all, I've very much enjoyed this discussion, and I hope it's helpful to you and others who may see this. I'm very proud of having served at the NRC is that I think that uh, independent agencies like the NRC play actually a very crucial role in achievement of governmental purposes. Uh, we try to do it in a way that preserves all the elements of democracy and that making sure everyone is heard. I think a lot of the decisions that the NRC makes should be protected from political intervention. And so having an agency that has that uh, independence and has bipartisan leadership is a way to uh, assure that inappropriate political influences don't occur. And let me say that one other aspect of this that's important to the regulated community and maybe to everyone is that having an independent agency that is not subject to the oscillations that can come from a political process provides regulatory stability. Uh, and that's really important to the regulated community and to the, those who are affected by the regulated community and sort of knowing that, okay, this is a rule and this is what's going to hold absent a reason to change, a principled reason to change. So I think independent agencies really are a very, very important engine of democracy, as you've described the whole purpose of this whole discussion. So thank you very much. Thank you very much for allowing me to participate. I've been honored to have been called on by you. I've enjoyed it. Dick Meserve, a lawyer, a nuclear physicist, a science administrator, a government leader, a great patriot. Thank you, Dick. If you enjoyed this podcast, check out our larger suite of CSIS podcasts from Into Africa, The Asia Chessboard, China Power, AIDS 2020, 
The Trade Guys, Smart Women, Smart Power, and more. You can listen to them all on major streaming platforms like iTunes and Spotify. Visit csis.org slash podcasts to see our full catalog of 